Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We know this from a neuroscientific kind of level. In order to get something in life, whether it's, you know, chocolate, cake, love, promotion, we usually need to do something. I'm thirsty. I take the cup and I have a little sip. So in our mind, action has been linked with reward. When we expect something good, we're acting. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Tally Sherritt. Dr. Sherritt is the director of the Effective Brain Lab. She's also a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London and on the faculty of the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT. Dr. Sherritt's research integrates neuroscience, behavioral economics, and psychology to study how emotion and motivation influences people's beliefs and decisions. Dr. Sherritt's award-winning books, The Optimism Bias and The Influential Mind, have been praised by outlets including The New York Times, Forbes, and more. To top it off, her two TED Talks have been viewed more than 15 million times. Today on the show, we discuss how to motivate yourself to change a behavior that you don't like, is it really necessary to develop a why before trying to achieve a goal, how to start a healthy habit even if you don't enjoy it, whether or not manifestation actually works, why you must learn to develop optimism and how to actually use it to your advantage, why resilience is so important for your health, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Tally Sherritt to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Tally, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'd love to jump right in and ask a question that I think a lot of people wonder about, and that is how do you motivate yourself to change a behavior that you're not happy with? First of all, it's good to kind of think about why you want to change that behavior, like what the goal is, um, and also what has been standing in your way. And I think those answers may then suggest different solutions. And it's, I mean, it's so different, whether it's something like, oh, I want to start eating well or um, exercising or, I don't know, working more hours versus I want to change the way I interact with others, right? So something, I mean, there's a difference between for exercise, you know what you need to do, right? You need to get out and run or get out and do whatever, but and you could schedule it and so on. And then you have to motivate yourself to do that. And, and there's ways to do that. And we can talk about it. But that's a little bit different than I don't want to get angry or like when I get angry, I don't want to like start raising my voice or things that are kind of more automatic. So um, that that's kind of a whole different thing. But I think for the kind of new year kind of change you kind of things, it really helps to look at your progress. So to actually track your progress um, and also, you know, have a goal and have the steps towards that goal. So maybe you want in a year to run a marathon. Fine. And so like really work it out. You know, the first month I'm going to start with like a kilometer every other day or whatever. Right. And so have the steps and then track your progress. And of course, you're not going to tick um, your kind of sub goal every single week. But it's really helpful to see yourself getting better um, and to see the progress going up. So whether it's an Excel sheet or a little like board, you know, in your room, that's really helpful. Having social support is really helpful. So it could be either someone that is doing this with you. Perhaps it's a team effort. Perhaps it's just someone who has the same goal. Or it could be just some someone who's supporting and making you accountable, right? So if my goal is to write a book um, and I know I want to write a chapter every month, perhaps there's someone that I say, okay, the first of the month I send you that chapter. And if I don't, you know, here's $100 and you don't return it to me. So that's like the social support. But also the second thing that I mentioned is not only 
rewarding yourself, which is very helpful as well. And we'll talk a minute about how do you reward yourself for these things that you do, but also a sort of penalizing yourself, right? If you don't get that goal. But in general, for most changes, we find that rewards are more effective than uh, penalties. And so often we have these long-term goals and the rewards are way in the future, right? And that's a bit difficult. It's difficult to be motivated by a reward that's way in the future, a marathon in a year, you know, lose a few pounds by like, I don't know, next Christmas. And so what you need to think is what are the immediate goals, uh, immediate rewards that I can get from engaging in this behavior? Come up with some of those. So for example, um, a few people have told me that when they go to the gym, they allow themselves to watch some like reality TV that they don't usually allow themselves to watch or read some kind of trashy magazine, right? So it's kind of an immediate reward. So think about what that immediate reward is um, that can motivate you. Um, sometimes the immediate reward is emotional. You know, I just feel so much better when I walk back home from the gym. So think about those. And that's kind of a way to bridge the temporal gap between the action, which we start now, and the, and the, and, you know, the ultimate goal achievement, which is way in the future, but there's like rewards in between that we need to really kind of think about and manifest. What's interesting is I know a lot of your work, you know, stems from studying emotions and how they impact decision-making and motivation and, and stuff that we've already been talking about. And you're, you're talking about like one of the most effective ways to, to change a behavior is to give yourself this external reward, external validation, just something tangible that you can kind of see where you'll hear a lot of people say the the only way to stick to a goal, the only way to achieve a goal is to get deep into like an, a, an emotional why as far as like what your mission is for achieving that thing. Do you think that's necessary for people to be able to tap into that? And if so, um, how can somebody begin to do so? I don't think it's always necessary. It could be helpful for these really, really big like lifetime goals, right? I want to be a screenwriter. Why do you want to be that, right? But I think for a lot of goals in our life, the why is not essential. It could be helpful, but it's not essential because we can motivate ourselves with short-term incentives. Like, for example, I mean, it depends what you think about the answer of the why. For example, I like running because it makes me feel good. That's it. There's no, like deep why. I enjoy it. I run, I listen to a podcast, I listen to, to music, right? Um, even writing. I mean, yeah, okay, I write. And, and, you know, you can think about the big why and the big why may be like changing the way people think and giving them knowledge. And, and when I think about that, that's true. But I, if writing wasn't enjoyable, at least a good amount of the time, just fun thing to kind of like immerse yourself in, I would probably not do it. And, and, and again, so you could do things where there isn't like huge great whys. And you could also have big, big whys, great, huge ones, but without the short-term joy or any kind of reward, you're unlikely to get there. So why is not enough? And it's not always necessary. It's helpful for a lot of the big things, but um, yeah, I don't think it, on its own it's enough. So how do you get somebody to do something that they need to do to improve their health, whether it be break like an addiction or somebody who needs to go to the gym because they've just been told they have diabetes or whatever it is, and yet they don't enjoy the very thing that they're doing, but yet they need to do it like for survival. Like the person who, I mean, I, I don't know a lot of people who just love going to the gym every single day. A lot of times just it becomes, a, it's a habit. So do you believe that somebody always has to like in, enjoy the, the process of what they're trying to, to go after in order to do it? Or is there a way for people to almost just fake it until they make it to be able to develop the habits? Yeah. Okay. So habit is, is a good kind of point. So the question, once it's a habit, then we're on a good path, right? It's just habitual. We don't really think about it, but how does it become a habit? How do we get there? I think it, it's very, very difficult for it to become a habit if there is zero reward. I do not see people getting anywhere if there is absolutely zero reward that they're getting out of it. There needs to be a sort of reward, either external or internal. If 
there isn't one that's apparent. It has to be constructed, right? You have to find what that reward is. A gym is like, that's a really um, relatively easy thing to think about because you can construct that by saying, I'll meet you, a friend, you know, in the gym. And that's a reward. It's a social reward, right? Or I'm going to listen to a podcast while I, I work out. That's my reward. You kind of bundle the things that you don't like to do with something that you really like to do. And I mean, that is one-on-one behavior, right? We do actions because either it leads to a reward or it helps us avoid a punishment. And so that's, that's the way we work. Whether we know it or not, that's, that's what it is all about. Um, avoiding punishments, if there are not immediate punishments, it's very hard to motivate behavior and action by just thinking about how do I avoid punishments. Because if you think about it, and, and we, we know this from a neuroscientific kind of level, in order to get something in life, whether it's you know chocolate, cake, love, promotion, we usually need to do something. I'm thirsty, I take the cup and I have a little sip, right? So in our mind, action has been linked with reward. When we expect something good, we're acting. And so in fact, when there's an expectation of a good thing, there's a signal that goes deep down from our midbrain and in in where the dopamine neurons are all the way to our reward center, then to the frontal, uh, to the motor cortex, and it makes us more likely to act. And then on the other hand, in order to avoid the bad stuff, on average, we usually need to not do anything, right? In order to avoid deep waters, untrustworthy people, we need not to act. And so we have kind of evolved in this an environment where there's a link between the expectation of a punishment and inaction. And so when we expect something bad, our immediate reaction is to freeze. Only then do we act. And of course, we're sophisticated creatures. We can overcome that. We can overcome that freezing. But that is our automatic reaction. So we've done studies where we ask people to press a button in order to get a dollar. And they do it really well and really fast. But if we tell them, press a button to avoid losing a dollar, they don't do that as well because action is better connected with getting the dollar than avoiding losing it. You brought up an interesting point and I'm wondering like there's so many people, whether it's the new year, whether it's midway through the year, whether it's a spring, whatever, that they, they try to achieve a goal, whether it's fitness related, personal development related, relationship related, et cetera. And they are motivated to do it in the moment and then they just fall flat on their face, right? We see this all the time. And so I'm wondering, is the mistake that people are making, is it that they are not coupling this thing that they know they need to do, but they might not enjoy right away? They're not coupling that with something that they do like doing in the meantime. You mentioned like going with to the gym with a friend or listening to a podcast or, you know, going on a hike, you know, or just something where they're enjoying something. Is that the is that the the missing link you think with people who start out to set and to set a goal or to break a bad habit or what have you? Yeah, so that's one thing because you need those like constant immediate rewards. And then the other thing is seeing the progress, right? And actually you have these in like these like apps, right? Like these fitness apps. Um, it shows you like, oh, this is like your longest run ever or like, your quickest run of the week. And so it shows you your progress. And, and so every time you're finished with like the workout, you come in and come home and like, you know, track it. And at the same time, there's some kind of reward. So on these fitness apps, the reward is like, hooray. And you get like these kind of like sparkly stars or whatever. Yeah, that that is really kind of the the secret to succeed in those kind of things that you have to do daily, right? Right. The immediate rewards and the kind of, you see it in front of your eyes that there's a progress and there's a goal. And then the goal is, yeah, yeah the ultimate one may be far away, but then there's these steps, right, which are a little bit closer. So I want to get into optimism and how this plays into all this, because I think those two lanes are just so parallel in that when somebody is in a bad place in their life and they're trying to change a bad habit or a bad behavior, I think there, in my opinion, there, there needs to be some level of optimism that they're going to be able to get there. Otherwise they're going to end up falling flat on their face. Cause if I just, I just believe that in some way, if we convince ourselves, it's like the old quote, if you, if you tell yourself you can, you, you, um, you can't, or if you tell yourself you can, you can, if you tell yourself you can't, you can't, right? How do you, so how do you define optimism and how can somebody use optimism to their advantage and, and not in a way where it's Pollyanna and they're setting themselves up for failure? 
Okay, so optimism is expecting positive events, right? So you expect good things to happen and not necessarily the bad things, which is different from hope. You can hope that good things will happen, but don't believe that it will, right? That's the distinction. Optimism is this conviction. I, I believe it is going to happen, right? And it is essential to motivate us. Because, you know, that is what is driving us forward. We think like, oh, it's possible to achieve this, or at least somewhat possible that it's worth for me to, to act. And so it definitely is motivating. If you don't think you're going to, like, get that promotion, right, your company is not going to succeed, you're not going to find love, well, you then you don't try. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if you don't try, it's definitely not going to happen. And there's actually a, a correlation between pessimism and depression, right? People with, it is, it is a symptom, official symptom of depression is pessimism. Um, and people with depression tend to just stay in bed, right? They don't get up, they don't try, right? And it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, there's also what's known as the optimism bias, which is that you believe that things will happen and you kind of assign likelihood for positive events that are greater than the actual likelihood. So you think, oh, I'm going to get like, you know, a million people listening to this podcast where actually maybe it is, you know, 200,000. Um, but and then and then, you know, you end up story of my life. <laughs> you end up with and it's like so you don't end up with that one million but you know another like you know you were talking about kind of cliches another one that's true is that you have to expect the gold in order to get the silver so yes your expectations are probably not going to be met on average for most of us you know those really really but those really high goals will get us up you know not quite to maybe to work to what we're like believing that will happen, sometimes it will, it will motivate us to do the best that we could do. Um, and so that's definitely why it is impo important. And it is more, I think, important to have that than to be like, okay, I'm going to have these negative expectations. I'm not going to be disappointed. Great. Okay. So you're not going to be disappointed, but also you won't achieve as much. And in fact, what the studies show is that people who are optimistic, they tend to get over disappointment quite fast. So they don't achieve quite, even, even if it's a failure. Okay. And we know for entrepreneurs, for example, entrepreneurs tend to be more optimistic than the average population. Um, and of course they need to be because the likelihood of success is so low. Most entrepreneurs will fail, but the thing with optimists is, okay, they fail. And then they're like, they say, okay, I've learned so much from this failure, which means I can do better for when my next attempt. So it is that optimism that keeps driving them even after they fail. It's not that they're not disappointed at all and they can be down for uh, a certain amount of time, but then optimism kicks in again and drives them forward. I know in your, your new book, you talk about resilience and how it's important for like a, for a healthy mind, for a healthy brain. And what we can talk about that in a bit, but you know, one of the, the things that I think can happen sometimes when people are going through adversity, which I know helps build resilience, is that there's this cognitive dissonance, at least the way that I see it, in, in where you, you're trying to tell yourself or have this optimistic outlook on your life, yet your environment doesn't reflect that at all. Like you're not making the money. Um, you don't have a relationship. You you know, or in the depths of despair. I could go on and on with examples. Is that a thing or am I completely missing um, the idea here? And how can somebody bridge that gap so that they're not feeling like, so disconnected from their actual reality when they're looking to move forward after adversity? Yeah. So, I mean, you can get into this kind of illusion that is not helpful, right? I mean, so what we find is that level of optimism is obviously, um, you know, quite different across the population. We do find that 80% of the population do tend to have this optimism bias, but it can go all the way from mild, which is most of us, to the real extreme, where, you know, your expectations are way beyond what, what is reality is, and it can cause you to make bad decisions, financially bad decisions, health decisions, right? So if you're overly optimistic and really um, underestimating your risk, then you can do things like um, bike without a helmet, not put a belt on when you're in the car, not go to um, health screening, 
put money into ventures which the likelihood of succeed is so low that you know you're just going to lose all your money and so on so it is a scale the extremes are never good I was just trying to further understand this idea that I've had where I think a lot of people have a hard time with success out of adversity because you have the online self-help world saying, just be positive, be optimistic, which we've kind of discussed is very valuable in these situations. But I think people feel defeated because their their life at the moment isn't optimistic. They don't have money. They don't have what they want. So how, how can somebody bridge the gap so that they're, they're not feeling so disconnected from the, from reality? So to be clear, I don't think it is easy at all to become optimistic. So a huge part of whether we're optimistic or not is down to our genes. And when I say huge power, it's between 30% and 40% is, is genetically determined. Another huge part is our environment, right? And what we have learned. And it is very difficult to change so there is studies showing that change is possible. I'm not saying it is not possible. It is possible. Martin Seligman, for example, has shown that you could train people to be more optimistic by changing the way that they are interpreting events. So what optimists tend to do is when something good happens, they say, let's say you are an engineer and your project really worked out well. So they believe that this happened because of their traits. Like, I'm really good at, mat at, like, at being an engineer, but not only am I good at this, I have rational thinking, I have good management skills, and this means that I'm going to have more success in the future because it's traits, it's stable, and it's not just this one particular thing, it also probably relates to other things that I'm going to try, right? When something bad happens, they um, interpret it as related to something that is less permanent. So my project didn't work because really I didn't put enough time in it, right? Next time I'm going to put more time. It's not something stable. It's not trait. It doesn't mean anything about my future and it's not going to generalize to other things. That's what optimists do. Pessimists do with the exact opposite. So what Martin Seligman did, he just, he trained people to think in that way, um, to interpret events in their life in that way. And it, it was helpful. So that's A, to say that it's not easy to become an optimist if you're not. And it's also not the case that we're, that like the suggestion is to look at your reality in a way that absolutely doesn't make sense, right? The goals have to, you need to like, whatever the goal is, there has to be some kind of path that you can think of of getting there. And you can also have to be okay with getting somewhere which is not quite the end goal, um, and kind of taking it one one step at a time, but it is it is helpful to believe that there is a way to get better, right? So you could say, my I am like in a really bad place, and I have you know I I, I don't have much, and I'm gonna you know it's not helpful to say now I'm gonna become a whole Hollywood star, right? But you could like how can I get how can the environment get better? What what are things that can get better? And then how can I believe that that is possible? And so one way to do that is to just think about, okay, what needs to be done, right, to get to that place? And of course, there's going to be hurdles on the way, and that has to be acknowledged. And it's also not the case that someone's going to be optimistic all the time about every aspect of their life. That's not the case. Yeah, and, you see, and I think where this gets brought up a lot is in the, the manifestation world. And I've talked about manifestation in, in depth on the show. And, you know, my pushback on a lot of that is just the, on the fluff side of it, where people think that, I mean, I, people have this idea at times where they can just, you know, write something down, sit on their couch, and then boom, whatever they want appears. And I just don't think it were, I mean, if it were that simple, I mean, trust me, I'd have everything I wanted in my life because I'd be so eager to write this stuff down and sit and, and wait for it to happen. What are your thoughts on manifestation? Do you, do you see any benefits of it? Do you see it or any scientific validation? Um, do you see it to be useful of any sorts? Yeah. So what we find is that most optimists, they don't believe that these things will appear out of thin air. It's not that they think like, oh, I'm going to succeed at this job by doing nothing, or I'm going to be healthy just by sitting on the couch and eating potato chips. That's not the case. What optimists, they tend to believe these positive things because they tend to do the things, realize that these are the things that needs to be done to get there. 
right? So if we take health, for example, optimists tend to follow the doctor's orders, uh, right? They tend to exercise more and so on. So they think, okay, I can get there because I'm going to do ABC. So I think perhaps optimism in some extent, well, I mean, we know that's true. It's a sense of control. It's a, a sense that you have control over your life. And so you can steer the wheel in the right direction. And so that's kind of the thing. And you have self-control to go ahead and, and do those actions. Now, the, in terms of manifestation, it's, a, it's not that I believe something, they will happen, but rather if I believe something, it will change my actions and my actions can change reality, right? Um, and vice versa, even worse is if I have negative expectations, they will change my action or more likely induce inaction. And that will definitely change your actions. There's nothing like more guaranteed that like nothing's going to happen if you don't do anything, right? So that's a difference. I think with a lot of kind of what you're talking about manifestation, they're missing the action part. It's like, I have a belief and then whoops, it's just here. No, I have a belief and then there's a lot of work and a lot of actions and then it would lead me somewhere closer to that outcome. How do you convince somebody that adversity and hardship, resilience is healthy for them? So the science actually shows, okay, so there's two things that the science shows. One is it is a case that adversity is related to mental health problems. However, it's not the case that most people who go through adversity um, will end up with mental health problems. So the fact that there's a correlation doesn't mean that like, you know, most people that experience this specific thing, there are, there are extremes where you might get to higher percentages. But um, in most cases of adversity, it's not that most people will end up with mental health. It's just more so than someone who hasn't gone for adversity. And what's interesting is we had a study where we had people who went for adversity and some of them had mental health problems later on. So they had adversity in childhood and later on at adults. Some of them had mental health problems, some didn't. And then we had healthy individuals, uh, sorry, people without adversity. And then some of them ended up healthy and some of them ended up with mental health problems. And we found that the most optimistic group were the ones who had adversity and ended up with no mental health problems. So in other words, these optimistic tendencies protected them. They had to, like the ones with the, they had to have the really strong optimism because they went for adversity and yet they ended up fine. And then the people um, who had the most pessimism, the least optimism were the ones who had zero adversity at childhood and yet ended up with mental health problems, right? So it's, it's this complex interaction where yes, your experiences matter, but also what you have within you for whatever reason. It could be genetic. It could be like, well, you had adversity, but you had some kind of good model to look at or something that could definitely take you forward. And, you know, it had, it means that these people are stronger than those that had, that had not gone through adversity. And it makes sense because you've gone through it. And then, you know, your way of thinking is, well, I've done that. You know, I went through that. What else? Right. I can, I can actually get through most things now. And so it does give you a sense of confidence if you're able, right, to get through without these things ending up being um, a real problem that's, that's really affecting you on a daily basis. So it appears that optimism, you know, needs to be at the foundation for people in order to navigate adversity in a healthy way based on, you know, what I just heard you say. But again, it's not that easy that we could just adopt it, right? It's not like, oh, I'm going to be optimistic. So it's it's not that. But I, I do believe that going through hard times builds optimism because it builds your self-confidence and your self-esteem. Absolutely. Is there another path to get there? Like, is there, I mean, in the same realm as manifestation. A lot of stuff in that community also will say, just, you know, write down affirmations, put, you know, notes on your bathroom mirror, tell yourself you're successful and beautiful and all these things. Do you believe in that in, in built in building optimism or is there other things that are backed by science that people can do on a regular basis to change their brain in a way where they can be naturally more optimistic? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've never tried 
what like the examples that you said myself and I don't know about the studies so I don't know if there's actual studies showing that it helps or doesn't help you don't seem convinced I'm not necessarily convinced but I also don't think it could lead to kind of a negative effect I mean I don't know I can't think of a reason at the moment but maybe maybe so I don't know it's it probably not going to hurt you but you know the the things that are good for our happiness are happiness and optimism are very much related. They're not the same thing. Happiness is how I feel at the moment. Optimism is what I expect in the future, but the two things are related in the, the case that like, you know, if I expected things that makes me happy in a moment. Right. And all, so I can feel really bad in the moment, but if I'm, you know, I mean, not feel if I can have like, you know, be in a very bad situation in the moment. But if I think like, oh, I'm going to get out of there and like in a month, there's this really great thing waiting for me that will affect you today. Um, and so we do tend to see also that the same things that positively affect happiness are also the things that positively affect optimism. And so things like, for example, I know that that you're very much into like physical fitness. Exercise has a huge, great effect right on your happiness. I mean, this, the, the, it's very, very clear, the science. Um, going out to nature, right? These things come back again and again, which is like social interactions, exercise, going out to nature. And these are things that are relatively within our control um, that we could go, we, we could actually do. What are the other kind of important things. I mean, it is helpful to know, to, to know what your goals are. You know, if you're going for life and you don't, you can't figure like, what is my goal at all? Then there's nothing to be optimistic about, right? Um, so maybe those manifestations help people like figure out what it is that they want. And in that sense, maybe that's helpful. When it comes to like behavior change and, and motivation and stuff, I know you've talked, we've talked about how to make, you know, better decisions and how to make, you know, how to make sure to incorporate certain things into your life so that the, the task or the behavior you're trying to change becomes more enjoyable and the process becomes more likable and stuff like that. Is it harder? Like, does this still apply when somebody's brain's been like compromised? Like when somebody is like just coming out of like a traumatic relationship or they've just, they're just coming out of drug addiction where their brain is just completely hijacked. They're not as emotionally stable as, as, as somebody who's not going through that. Does the process of changing the behavior, changing, changing the habit become different when that when stuff like that happens? I think these are very different things. Addiction versus just, you know, bad things that happen to us that we have to get through, like a relationship breakup. For these, like, things that, that are bad that, that happen, you are not going to be optimistic, like, from day one, right? You have to have time to process it. It's gonna, um, you're gonna be in a, in a not great uh, place for a while and you just have to get through it. And so most people do. I mean, and I think, I think it's helpful to know this, that on average, human resilience is really extraordinary. Studies show that whatever, even the, the worst imaginable thing that you can imagine people get back to their baseline level of happiness. And according to the different event, it could be different. Divorce, for example, on average takes two years. Losing a partner takes about the same amount of time. Losing your job takes a few months only. So even if we do nothing, on average, you're going to slowly go back to your baseline level of happiness. That is just nature, right? Human nature. And I think that's why our species, it's one of the reasons our species are so successful um, because there's been lots of adversities and by nature, we just get through it. Um, if you think about the pandemic, I mean, that's a, a really good example where people's life has been, you know, changed within days and there was a lot of stress and, you know, a lot of, of negative reactions. But on average, most individuals went back to their baseline happiness within, it depends what study you look, our studies shows two months, some study shows a little bit more um, on average. Now, that is from like a bird's eyes view. But there is, of course, the, these pieces of the population where people don't adjust at all, or adjust much, much, much slowly. And these are people mostly with mental health um, history or experiencing a mental health problem at the moment. So those people tend to 
adapt slower. There's a great study by a professor at the University of Florida, Aaron Heller, where he had his students got results on an exam, and some people didn't get great results, right? And what he did is he asked them how they were feeling from that moment on, and then every 45 minutes for the rest of the day. And what he found is when someone get, got a bad result, they felt bad. And it, you know, regardless of your mental health status, everyone felt bad. You could be healthy or not. But then what happened is slowly, slowly, people started feeling better. And, but the rate by which they started feeling better was very much related to their mental health history. Healthy individuals were much quicker at going back to baseline. People with mental health issues did get back to baseline, but it took them at least double the time. So that's, you know, you, you need the time to get through it, but on average you will. Now addiction, that is a totally different thing because that's a situation where you know it's not good for you. And in fact, you don't even like it, but there is like a drive, there's a want, right? To go ahead and do it. You know, addictions can be, it could be for drugs, it could be for, you know, um, alcohol, it could be for sex, but even, you know, even things like just social media, I think is a good example, because most of us sometimes feel this addiction where we don't want to open social media, it makes us feel bad, but yet we do it, right? And that's like a very kind of a low level uh, example of it. So that, that requires a whole different regime. Um, I think that's more of a specific case that to get over it, you need to go through like certain regime um, to get rid of that addiction. I mean, I know when you become addicted to drugs, it hijacks like your reward system. And you talk about, we, we, you talk about rewards and we've talked about it throughout this conversation. Do you know, do you know anything? Is there any scientific studies that talk about like how, how somebody can like reprogram their rewards, the reward system so that they can try to unlearn some of these addictive behaviors or you're not familiar? I'm sure there's there's a lot. I'm not like an addiction expert, so I wouldn't know like to quote like the best uh, examples. I want to get into emotions because humans are emotional beings, as we know, and emotions. I know you said like drive a lot of human behavior. Yet sometimes our emotions get us into some big trouble, right? We say some things we shouldn't say that could jeopardize relationships for the rest of our lives or jeopardize our career, et cetera. How can somebody begin to have a healthier relationship with that where they're not responding to things in, in the short term with emotions and they're kind of getting back to a place of, of logic? Um, okay. So first of all, just to say, emo we like the way people think about emotions is kind of the way that you describe, like it's a bad thing. <laughs> it's like there's emotion and there's logic and emotion is hurting us and we need to get rid of it. Uh, so I just want to kind of, um, kind of take a different approach, which is emotions are there because they are good for us. They do help us make good decisions, right? Basically they are responses to what's around us. So they're very quick responses to like, oh, I see this thing, like in the past, this has been good, or in the past, this has been bad, or this a fret, or like, you know, um, and then like, there's emotion, and you don't even know why, right? A lot of times, you're not sure why, why does this make me feel good? Or like, why am I angry? Why am I fearful? Um, but it's your brain doing these calculations, which are quite sophisticated, really, really fast. And on average, these are good signals. On average, they tell you, this is good, this is bad, stay away, get closer. Um, and we would not want to live without our emotions. In fact, there are people who um, have um, a condition where they don't have their amygdala. The amygdala is a part of the brain that is important for processing emotion. There's two in each hemisphere. Some people don't have them. It's a very rare condition. And they have a hard time. So, for example, like this one woman describes knowing that when she crosses the street and there's a car coming right in, right, you know, fast in her direction, she feels no fear. She knows it's bad, but she doesn't feel it, right? And that's not, not good because our feelings like will get us like running out of there quickly, right? So, and as well as good things, right? The good things get us to what, I mean, on average, the things that makes us feel good, those are things that are helping us survive, right? So, and they're moving us forward. So it's not something that um, you want to get rid of. Now, does it sometimes get us into trouble? Yes, for a few reasons. One is they're not like 100% accurate, Right. And also um, in social interactions, sometimes we want to think it through and it might not be the best reaction to act on them. 
Um, now, I think it is helpful that nowadays a lot of these interactions happen digitally, which means you don't have to respond in real time. Sometimes, I mean, we still have face-to-face -face interactions, but a lot of these things I know to me that trigger me are like, it's an email, right? Um, a lot of the time or something else that, that happens online. And that's good because for that, all you need is like a rule that says, you do not respond. You can write what the response if you want, but don't send it, right? Um, just take your time and have that as a rule. That's really, really helpful. And then if you could do that also for in-person, obviously it is difficult and it requires kind of self-reflection and self-control um, as well, as well as to the positive. You know, you're like, ooh, I really want that. But instead of going through it, take some time. And, you know, you know the... The famous uh, book by uh, Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, where he makes a claim um, that if you take more time, if you go the slow way, then you could kind of have more, like you say, less of the emotion driving, right? But it could be that you take the time and then reflect on it and you say, hmm, still this is what I want. Or like, actually, responding in anger in this case is the right way to go. Practicing the pause, as they say, right? Exactly. I want to get into an interesting theme you talk about in your new book uh, on habituation to where what's interesting to me is like there's there's obviously a lot of communication online about the importance of discipline and staying consistent with certain things. And what you write about in your new book as far as like habituation, like breaking free from some of these disciplines or being consistent in certain things and taking breaks can actually be more effective in improving your overall well-being and happiness. Why is that? It's important both for when, for the good things in our life, but also in the bad. So let's start with the good. So I think most of us do have good things in our life, whether it's like a good relationship or a nice house or a good job. One of, I mean, there's something, not all of these things necessarily, but quite surprisingly, they don't affect our happiness on a daily basis like you'd expect them to. And often it's also the case where you really, like we were talking a lot about goals and things that people want. So I really want that job. And then you get the job and you're like super happy for about a week, right? Maybe two weeks. And then you're like, well, this is like not my baseline and what, what else do I want? You habituate. So you habituate to these good things, which means they don't bring you as much joy as they really should. And the question is, how can we change that? How, we, how, how can we get the joy from these things that have been around us and so we've habituated and don't react to anymore? And one way is to take breaks. And before I kind of tell you about how that works and why it works, maybe I'll give you an example of a project that I worked on in which it was for um, a travel company and they wanted to know what makes people happiest on vacation and when are they happiest. Um, and there were two interesting findings. One was that the happiest was 43 hours into a vacation. So people go on vacation, they get, you know, they unpack and all of that within 43 hours, they're really, really happy. But from that point on, happiness starts going down and down and down, right? They're in there on the beach and they're still happy, but it goes down and down and down because they habituate, right? And the other interesting thing was that when you asked them what was the best part of vacation, the word that they use more often than any other word is first, right? The first dip in the ocean, the first cocktail, the first view of the, uh, of the pool. And so that really means that these firsts are really important. So how do you make more firsts and how do you combat habituation is by cutting good experiencing experiences into bits. So for example, you might want to take shorter vacations, but more of them, right? So instead of going somewhere far for two weeks, you might go closer places, but have them for like, you know, a long weekend. And so that's one way to get more of the joy because joy is high, it goes down, but that's okay. A few months later, you go again. Um, a great study that showed this was they asked people to uh, think about um, a, a piece of music that they really like, a song that they really like. And they asked them, would you prefer to hear the song from beginning to end, no interruptions, or would you prefer to have breaks, have interruptions? And of course, everyone said, listen from beginning to end. However, it's a 99% said that. However, when they did the actual experiment, they found that people enjoyed the song more if there were breaks. Why? Because they like really enjoyed the song, started to habituate, there was a break. And then they, they started again, so now they're back up here. You know, so um, taking breaks is is a way to kind of get the joy again. And it could also be breaks from our life in order. I know that like when I go away, 
and you know for like a few days or even more and then I come back and then suddenly I can see all the great things and I can feel them right there's kind of we call this re-sparkling so things can be great but if they've been there all the time there's kind of dust on them and you have to kind of go away and come back to be able to to see those things and the same um in in a funny way it's also true for the bad things in life so there are things in our life that are not great and we habituate to them and so we don't feel you know as annoyed by them um, which is great. You're like, okay, that's great. Why would I, it's good that I'm not feeling annoyed by these bad things in my life. But if you don't feel annoyed and if you don't feel the pain, you're not trying to change, right? And if it's something that you could change, you actually might want to feel the pain. Um, and so I feel there's a lot of things that people don't realize are actually hurting them, but it's kind of like in the background, it's kind of like a, a sound of an AC, right? If there's a sound in the background and you don't really know it's causing you anxiety. And then once someone turns off the AC, you're like, Oh, so much better, so much quieter. But you have to have someone or yourself turn it off in order to feel that. Um, and so an example that we give is um, social media, which is some people, a lot of people suspect that it's causing them anxiety and stress, but we don't really know. And it really takes, it will take a break for us to realize and to actually test this and to measure it and to see like how much it, um, is it affecting us in a negative way. So breaks can also kind of enhance and make the joy salient, but it can also make the bad things salient. And that's good when you can change those bad things. Do you think there needs to be some sort of process for like how to have a belt, have a, how to, how to have a better relationship with this bad thing there that somebody might be trying to change or do less of? I mean, I think of it where you see people do like sober October or they give up alcohol for like 30 days and they talk about how great they feel and they come back and they start drinking at the same, the same speed they were before. It's like, I don't, I got to understand, like, what are you doing? Do you think that that there needs to be that element to it in order for this to be effective? Yeah. So this is actually a really good example. And it, it the same thing happened with social media. So there was a study where um, it was conducted by the economist Hans Alcott. He had two group of people. He gave one group of people $100 in order to quit Facebook um, for a month. And the other group, he gave them $100 to not do anything. So they were still on Facebook. At the end of the month, he looked at how people were feeling. And the people who quit Facebook for a month were feeling better. They were happier. They were less depressed. They were like doing more things, more like in-person interactions, playing the piano, reading books. And they said that. They said, we're feeling better and we're surprised. We have no idea. And yet, just like, you know, dry January, um, they went straight back, most of them, and logged into Facebook. So it is the case that we would, if we do these things and we take the breaks, in, in some cases, we will realize that actually that thing has a negative effect of us, but we'll go back. And the question is, is why and is the break worth it? In terms of is a break worth it, I think it still is because at least you're aware. You're making like a decision that it's fully informed rather than not knowing like, oh, how, how, how am I going to feel if I don't drink for a month? Or how am I going to feel if I don't go on social media for a month? If I, at least you know and you are taking into account and making a decision. That's always better, I think. But why do you go back? It could be usually one of two things. One is... It could be an addiction. And as we said, addiction is doing things that you know is not good for you, but you can't help it, right? And I think that's true for social media and it's true for alcohol. And or you could say in terms that take Facebook as an example in social media and that specific experiment, they say, well, I'm happier, but I know less. They said, I know less. I have less information and I want information. Even if that information makes me feel bad, it makes me depressed. I still want to be in the know. So that's like a reason that they, they decided. So I think happiness is not everything. You know, you might say it makes me feel better in terms of like, you know, my joy and, but that's not everything. There's something else that this thing has given me that I, I want more. So in terms of decision-making and like cognitive thinking, etc., when somebody is trying to abstain from something. Let's just say that this person is not addicted to this thing. And it's just the talk about the average person. They're trying to abstain maybe from processed foods or alcohol or whatever. When they are getting a 
craving and when when they've re- when they're starting to realize that wow like I feel so much better without this thing I need to keep going on the path and they start to get a craving and their emotions start to take over like I want this now like all these things insights or tips for somebody to be able to like ride that wave so that they can just stay on the path that they're on and not give in to these urges that might come along so you're trying so the question now before we talked a little bit about how to get ourselves to do stuff right how to get ourselves to exercise how to get to eat better to go out and um now the question is how do we get ourselves not to do something um and that maybe i wonder i mean it is at least as difficult um as as getting ourselves to do things one thing you could do because we said, you know, I said there's this relationship in the brain between punishment and inaction. Um, you might put in place uh, a penalty. Just say something like, every time I do this thing that I'm not supposed to do, which is, you know, go on Facebook, drink, or whatever it is that you're trying to avoid, then put money in a charity that I don't support, right? So there's some kind of penalty that is immediate, right? Because a lot of these... These things that we do that we're trying to stop, they, they the punishment the punishment it doesn't it, it's not immediate. Like we do it like you you have one drink, it doesn't necessarily every time cause you a clear negative outcome, right? But if you then you pair a clear negative outcome to that, it might then be helpful to stop that action. So like that's why some of these things work where it's like if you you know, if you if you don't do something, you have to like put money into a bank account or something like that, right? Yeah, and not in your bank account, like you know, something really bad, right? Give money to your like worst enemy. And then, do you think that there's value in replacing a bad habit with a healthier one, or just do you think it's better just to abstain from that bad habit? Oh yeah, that's great. That is absolutely a great option if you could you could find a substitute, right? I mean, a lot of times these are what substitutes are, it's just, you know, I mean, for smoking, there's a lot of substitutes. They turn out always to be like, a, not necessarily less worse, or maybe it's a little bit less worse, but yeah, if you can have a substitute, so you eat the cookie, but it's sugar-free or whatever it is, um, that would be great. Regarding like, regarding happiness and your view on that, I know you talked about like happiness is finding, I think it's like what joy in the, in the short term and optimism is joy in the future or some sense of positivity in the future. I've heard a lot that personal relationships are like the key to, to longevity in the happiness world. Do you think that that still is king when it comes to happiness or have you found that there's other things that play into that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. It always comes top of the list. So social connections are the number one predictor to people's happiness. Absolutely. And, you know, things like income there's a lot of kind of complex relationship between income and happiness, but you know, even in all this, it's in the studies that show there is a relationship, it's not like up, up, up there. Right. Well, Tali, this has been awesome. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Um, enjoy chatting with you. And um, if people want to buy your new book, if they want to connect with you, where's the place to do that? Uh, right. So the new book, which is called Look Again, is coming out the end of February. So you can get that on Amazon or any store. And then a lot of the, talks as well as the kind of papers for academics but also papers for just uh, articles for just lay people um can be found on my lab website which is effectivebrain.com effective with a effective is kind of emotion affect um effective brain awesome i'll be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes and uh, thank you again for coming on i think my audience is going to really enjoy this one thank you for having me you got it